0: On Easter Sunday and now on Divine Mercy Sunday, in both cases, we're hearing the gospel writer John's account of that first Easter day. You can see it all play out before us in chapter 20 towards the conclusion of his gospel. And what we see is not celebration, but a great deal of confusion, grief, shame, and blame. It started in last Sunday's gospel when Mary Magdalene was the first to come to the tomb. She wasn't coming there to celebrate The resurrection, she was coming there fully expecting to find a corpse. Jesus had been buried with great haste on that good Friday afternoon. All the work had to be finished before the sun went down and began the Passover Sabbath. So bloodied and sweaty, they simply wrapped him in the shroud and put him in someone else's tomb. Now she has come with things with which to wash him and to anoint him and prepare his body for the more proper burial that she feels he deserves. To her amazement, the stone has been rolled away. The tomb is empty, save for that bloody shroud. She doesn't go around saying, he is risen. He did just what he said he would. Instead, she runs around the garden looking for him. Not looking for him alive, but looking for his body. That is why she says, to he whom she thinks to be the gardener, they have taken the body of my Lord. I don't know where they put him. Turns out that gardener is the risen Christ but she doesn't know it until he calls her by name. And then he makes Mary Magdalene an apostle to the apostles. Go and tell them that I have risen from the dead and to go to Galilee and I will meet them there. And She goes and tells them. Peter and John run to the tomb. They see that it's empty. They don't know what it means. And instead of going about in Jerusalem preaching the resurrection, Instead, they've gone back to the upper room, and that's where we pick up the gospel today, later on in John chapter 20. Have they gone back to that room and the Last Supper occurred on Mount Zion because they want to relive happier times with Jesus? When just days before this, he washed their feet, instituted the first Eucharist, made them his priests, and said, do this in memory of me. No, they're not there for happy memories. They're hiding under the table. They're afraid that those who killed Jesus are now going to round up those who believed in him and knock them off one by one. They are grieving because everything that they believe Jesus was going to do has failed. They thought he was leading them to victory. He has been defeated. They believe their defeat is coming. But they're also blaming each other. They sat at that same table that they're not hiding under. They sat there at the Last Supper when Jesus said, One of you will betray me. All of you will deny me. And they just went down the line. No, it's not me. Surely it is not I. Maybe it's him, but it isn't me. But then they went and did exactly what he said they would. All of them abandoned him. None of them stood with him at his trial. No one spoke in his defense. And only John was brave enough to stay at the foot of the cross. And so in the midst of all of this, the risen Christ appears to them in that first Easter night. They're not glad to see him. They're afraid of him. They think he's a ghost. What if this is some sort of trick or a hallucination? Seeing their fears, Jesus says to them more than once, peace be with you. But then John tells us he breathes on them, which seems a very insignificant detail, but it serves two purposes. Number one, that breath shows that this is not a ghost. This is a body. It has lungs. He has air. He can breathe. More importantly, it is John, the gospel writer's way of taking us all the way back to the book of Genesis, with which he seems to have a fascination. Genesis and the gospel of John both start with the same three words, in the beginning. Genesis telling us about the dawn of creation. John telling us about our hopes of a new creation in Christ Jesus. But it's back in Genesis, the second chapter, after God had created light in the universe, and the galaxies, and the planets. He created man at the beginning of chapter 2 of Genesis. But there seemed to be a two-stage process. Adam was created, but he was not yet animated. He was like a statue, a mannequin, lifeless on the ground. Until in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, God breathes life into Adam's nostrils. And only then is he a man fully alive. And if we go through the cycle of languages from the original Hebrew, then into the Greek, then into the Latin, then into the English, Genesis chapter two, verse 7 would say that God breathed his spirit into Adam's lungs. The life-giving spirit, that's the breath, the breath of God that Jesus had brought to that upper room, a holy wind to drive out the darkness and the fear. It is his spirit That is why, after he breathes on them, he says, Receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. It was his intention that they stay in that room no longer. They're supposed to go out there, be disciples, make disciples, preach the kingdom, baptize someone. But they don't go anywhere. A whole week passes. Doubting Thomas is finally with them on Divine Mercy Sunday, a whole week after he's risen from the dead. And they've gone nowhere. They've saved no one. They haven't preached to anyone. Jesus sees that he has his work cut out for him. Because unless or until he gets these men convinced and convicted that he has risen from the dead, they're not going to be able to convince anyone else. And even though he breathed on them, even though he said, receive the Holy Spirit, the only thing that made a difference was the tongues of fire on Pentecost when all of a sudden those who are afraid of their own shadow would be willing to go to the ends of the earth and most of them would become martyrs for the faith, finally willing to die for he who gave it all for the love of sinners like them, like me, and like you. But even though they didn't do anything, even though they didn't save anyone in that first Easter day, Jesus did give them their mission, the mission of the church, forgive sins. Whoever sins you forgive are forgiven. Of course, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and Sadducees would say, only God alone can forgive sins. But Jesus is God, and he's passing off the baton. He's going to go back to heaven. The lamb will return to his throne. But he entrusted to the church the mission of mercy, to forgive sinners, to restore them, in right relationship with God and with each other by taking their sins away. It was his will that there be a church that reconciles sinners. And for us, it happens in three different ways more than any other. It starts at baptism. It happens often over there in the confessional. And certainly whenever the priest steps to the bedside of someone in hospital or hospice or on their deathbed, preparing their soul by absolving them from their sins, the church continues to carry out this mission of mercy. How appropriate then that on the second Sunday of Easter we celebrate Divine Mercy Sunday. In a church that's 2,000 years old, a feast that's only been around for 23 years is very young. It is in its infancy. It started in the Jubilee year 2000. That's when our late Holy Father, Pope St. John Paul the Great, canonized St. Faustina Kowalska and said the second Sunday of Easter each year will be a feast devoted to the divine mercy. What is mercy? It's God excusing the punishment that we deserve rightfully because of our sins. He owes us nothing. He's given us everything, including a second chance, a fresh start, a new beginning. That's what Easter is all about. And it all started with that saint, Faustina Kowalska. She died in Poland in Krakow, 1938, a sister of mercy. For the last five years of her young life, she kept seeing something in her cell right by her bed most nights before she went to sleep. And it's what's here in this image before us. Whereas doubting Thomas and the other apostles said, I don't believe this. What are you? Who are you? All she could say when she saw that image is Jesus, I trust in you. She believed that Jesus, who is very much alive, Jesus who is God, who is everywhere, he can do all things. And if he wants to appear in Krakow by her bed, that's his will, that's his work. But he had a mission for her, not unlike that which was given to the apostles, and it was to be an apostle of his divine mercy in a world so filled with hatred, in a world like hers that was right on the brink of two world wars, to remind people of the tender mercy of God for us in Christ Jesus. He took the punishment to forgive the ones that we deserve. He took the nails. He chose the cross. He went to the tomb. He even went to hell. So we don't have to, to give us that fresh start and that new beginning. And this world needs God's divine mercy now more than ever. When people are so angry and impatient, most of the time, you can't say anything to anyone about everything because everything is offensive. Everyone is offended, all so sensitive. And we have people shooting up the churches and the banks and the schools. Why? Not because they even know those people, because, because they have hatred in their heart where there should be love. And that is why when Faustina saw that image, she saw a heart that was like a lighthouse. A beacon for a dark and stormy sea, and from it there were rays of blue and red. The blue waters are our baptism, by which God puts us on the path and lead us home to heaven, to happiness and to himself, but also the precious blood of the Eucharist, by which our sins are continually washed away. It's an ocean of mercy. And whereas back in Genesis chapter six, there was Noah's flood that washed away sinners, in the divine mercy of God in Christ Jesus, the ocean is washing sin away not sinners away. It is for us that fresh start and that new beginning. And so let us then turn to God's divine mercy in Christ Jesus, that we who have been forgiven might become forgiving and more willing to overlook the faults and failings of others as God has overlooked our own.